0: Welcome to Trauma and Pop Culture, a monthly podcast where we seek to make knowledge about trauma accessible to the everyday person through analyzing books, movies, TV shows, and other elements of popular culture through a trauma lens. I'm Katherine Spearing and I'm a trauma recovery coach. I also have a master's degree in religion and cultures and work with survivors of trauma on a regular basis. A word about popular culture. This could be material from modern times, like a Taylor Swift song, or it could be something really old that has retained its relevance over time. Like Shakespeare. On most of the episodes on trauma and pop culture, I'll be bringing other mental health professionals into the conversation, but occasionally it'll just be me. While we will be sharing general information about trauma, we are not diagnosing anyone, which is one of the reasons we'll likely stick to fiction most of the time. Please be advised that every discussion assumes everyone has listened to or read or watched said popular item. Expect spoilers around every corner. Occasionally we'll record these episodes while drinking or eating. So you'll often hear us discuss our food and beverage choices. Just wanted to give you a heads up. If you have questions about trauma or a show or movie or anything you think would be great to analyze, send it to traumaandpopculture at gmail.com. As I mentioned, I am a trauma recovery coach who also works with clients one-on-one. If you're interested in working with me, you can visit my website, katherinespearing.com coaching for more information and use the contact form to reach out. While you're on my website, you can sign up for my monthly mailing list, where I'll send out more tidbits about trauma, what popular culture stories I have found helpful on my own trauma recovery journey, plus a few other things you might enjoy. While the tone of this podcast is mostly lighthearted and fun, we will be discussing trauma, there might be some elements that are activating, especially if you're a trauma survivor. So move slow, take care of yourself. If you find yourself overwhelmed, you can always take a break and come back later. Let's jump into trauma and Viola Davis. And I, for folks who are listening, I am with my friend and colleague, Heather Gargas, who is a trauma therapist. Heather, I would love to hear from you. Some of the modalities or all of them, if you want to list them, that you are trained in. I know some of them,
1: but it's better for you to kind of sure list, list uh, what you do. Sure. So I am a somatic trauma therapist, and that basically means that as I work with people who have trauma, I work at like a bottoms up approach. So really focusing on the nervous system and how our body plays a significant role in healing in the ways that we hold our trauma in the ways that our bodies respond to our trauma, that it's not just cognitively or just working with the cognition. That's only about 20% of our daily functioning. The other 80% is very much implicit working with our body. And so I spend a lot of time with my clients doing more body focused, body oriented type healings. And so some of those modalities are Peter Levine's somatic experiencing, Aileen LaPierre's neuroaffective touch. I'm also trained in EMDR and do some internal family systems work as well.
0: Very cool. Do you tend to focus more on developmental trauma? Is that what ends up showing up the most for you?
1: Yeah. My demographic is usually developmental trauma, childhood trauma. I work with a lot of like abuse, neglect. I have a lot of clients who come from kind of like cult backgrounds and, you know, sexual abuse. And I have some people who have, you know, gone through things like torture and, and some of, some of those more maybe complex cases. So yes, developmental, childhood trauma. I also have a couple of clients who have gone through things kind of in their teens or early adult years as well, but mostly development.
0: Well, cool. The reasons why I wanted to chat with you, first of all, because we're both huge fans of Viola Davis. I'm a very recent fan of Viola Davis. So her book Finding Me just came out and then, and then I saw, I watched the woman king with you. Yes. I've seen other things with her in it. I'm now for the very first time watching how to get away with murder. That's I think so I, I think I just started season three last night. So I'm kind of like fun. kicking my way, kicking my way through it. That's I find it fun. very entertaining. And then we, we watched the Oprah interview with Viola Davis on Netflix. And I actually just rewatched that this morning to prep for our conversation and one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you because you have the trauma training as well and also just thinking about her story and the trauma of poverty and how that she has a lot of different types of trauma from different types of traumatic circumstances but that particular one feels to be kind of like the overarching traumatic circumstance in her life and her developmental years and her teen years and is sort of the umbrella under which some of the other, the other trauma that she mentions falls. And I wanted to chat with you about it because we grew up in just different economic circumstances. I would say that my family was probably well off and probably like upper, upper middle class. I didn't feel well off because- in my story, money was actually used as a control mechanism and as, as an abuse mechanism. And so it didn't, it wasn't my money and it wasn't like, like I didn't have any agency over that. And so that's just a very different sort of trauma than actually not having money and not, and growing up without that. And so I wanted to chat a little bit about that because that is a huge part of her story. And that things like, you know, the pipes freezing and having to wash your clothes at night and hang them up to dry and then put those same clothes on in the morning because and then they're still wet when you put them on in the morning the rat infestation in the apartments and that's just this whole different level of Mm. of of poverty and so just from your experience and then your perspective as well. How did that type of trauma show up for Viola Davis? How does that type of trauma show up and how does that present itself in someone's life?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody has not read finding me, it is her story and it's been just incredible to read about her life and One of the things that she says, she says, finding me is a deep reflection, a promise and a love letter of sorts to myself. My hope is that my story will inspire you to light up your own life with creative expression and rediscover who you were before the world put a label on you. Nice. I just love that belief system. And it took her, she'll name in the book that it took her a long time to get there. And a lot of that came from realizing that she needed to be in therapy and work through her own story, but she does. She, the very, I mean, probably like over half if not longer in this book is going into her life story that she did. She came from a very, very poor poverty space with her. She is the second youngest of six and her parents, though she develops a good relationship with her parents later in life, her parents really struggled financially. Her dad had a lot of rage and outbursts and took it a lot out on her mother. You know, Viola was born in Oh, my gosh, I think her birthday is August 11th, 1965, but she was born in 1965. And, you know, there are still a lot of a lot of just like blatant racism and attacks. Mm-hmm. towards her. One of the stories she talks about is, you know, she got good at running home as fast as she could so that the the group of little white boys wouldn't come and beat her up. And, you know, so there was so much survival that was happening in her life, you know, with whether that was we don't have any food to eat or, you know, there was so much trauma that she talks about how she wet the bed until and like well into her teens because, you know, her nervous system and her body could not figure out how to stay safe, couldn't find safety and, you know bedwetting is very much like a part of oh this is like where a lot of trauma our bodies is reacting to the trauma we're so scared that we can't Mm -hmm. uh, you know can't figure out what's going on especially as a child especially as a child but one of the really neat things like with her trauma story it was when she first started kind of getting into acting and you know she comes from nothing She talks about how her first teacher, one of one of she talks about how teachers in general and her life have made such a positive, good impact when she was coming from such trauma. But one of her her first acting coaches or acting teachers, you know, said, like, who in here wants to be an actor? And everybody like puts their hand up. He starts naming all of these hardships of what it's going to take to be an actor He's like, okay, so like, you know, who's okay with not having jobs for a long time? And then people would put their hand down. Who's okay with being, you know, very poor and having to like work your ass off. People put their hand down. And like, by the time he gets to the very end, Viola's hand is the one that is still in the air.
0: Yeah. Because her trauma had, Mm -hmm. had already, I, I can totally see that happening. And I know that this happens for me too. It was just like, oh, I've already survived this. Yes, no big deal. Oh, that's the price I have to pay for my dream. Oh, oh, no big deal. (laughs) Just that kind of like, oh, I got this. I got this. I Totally see that. Yeah, because there's the there is the the lack of ability to regulate when you are a child and you are never given the tools to to regulate, and so that showing up in something like bedwetting, running literal survival tactics of like running away from people who are dangerous and not having enough food and not having heat and the danger of, of watching your mother be, be injured and, and how that, that shows up. But then also once a survivor does survive and does kind of overcome it, this is not the case for everyone, but sometimes that does result in some like scrappy resilience that I think really aided Viola Davis in becoming who she is and, and her ability not just to overcome when acting is hard and and not producing, but also to overcome in her in her acting itself and like the absolutely. sort of actress that she became absolutely
1: because yes. of it. Yes, uh, that's a huge thing that I like she's probably my favorite actor hands down out of anybody and everybody and a big part of that is when you watch the films that she is in and the way that she connects to her emotions and the characters that she plays there's this deep and it's even hard to put into words what's happening but you can you can see it when she's when she's acting of like like one of my favorite scenes is in Fences with Denzel and Viola. And she's like telling him how much she has given up in order to support his dreams. Mm-hmm. And she's like bawling and like snot is coming like all the way down her face. And it's like she is connecting not just to that character, she's connecting to herself
0: mm-hmm.
1: that moment and you can't teach that
0: yeah exactly that's that's, you can't have to have felt that in order to portray it that viscerally and almost to the point and and now that i'm watching how to get away with murder and she talks about how that show was the first time she really felt like she could use her voice and she got to play a character that that someone like her normally didn't get to play, like this very exactly. sexy, very powerful, very yep. desirable person, yep. and, and how she just got to to be that person. And 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 just as I'm watching her portray this person, with that in the back of my mind, that this is the first time that she felt like she really got to use her voice. It's mm-hmm. it's very much changing how I'm interacting with Annalise Ke- Keating and, and, yeah. and seeing her as a person and a character and what sort of... Yes. A you're able to tap into with a very complex character that Annalise Keating is, which is really, really powerful. And I really resonated with it too. Cause I, I was remembering a role that I played in high school at the age of 16. It was the, the play was a miracle worker yeah. and I played Helen or Kate Keller, Helen Keller's mother. And mm-hmm. one of the opening scenes is Kate Keller realizing that Helen as a baby, as an infant, can't hear and can't, can yeah. see. And it's just like very like <sighs> the way that I did it <laughs> literally like screaming and freaking out and picking up the baby and running after the doctor that has just left. And so many people commented about like, wow, you did a stressed out mom really well. <laughs> and just the, and I remember just the release of that Uh role and like getting to scream I didn't get to scream in any other context in my life like I got to scream on stage Mm -hmm. and and then even now just like as I'm taking improv classes and folks have commented like like Catherine and I can tell that you're just kind of like leaving stuff on the stage. Like you're just kind of like coming, and you're just kind of like releasing when you like yes. get on stage. And I'm and yes. so just like I I resonated with that so much of just like getting to do, and I think it kind of probably functions as similar to the way like role play would function in mm-hmm. a therapy context of just That's getting amazing. to say the things that you actually feel and you actually think and just get it out and just get it out. And I can totally resonate with, with theater becoming this, this release and this healing mechanism for her Uh, jumping, rewinding a little bit to pre pre theater. I wanted to just make an observation about something in her story. You've already mentioned the bad wedding And Mm -hmm. the, the observation is, so she says that she wet the bed until she was 14. Mm -hmm. When she was 14 was also the same year that she stood up to her dad and her dad was beating her mom and like got between her dad and her mom. And she, she mentions that as like a pivotal moment Mm -hmm. in her life of like first time doing that. Mm -hmm. And that 14, the age of 14 was when she wins an art contest and when she decides that she wants to be a actress. And so just an observation, I don't know if she mentions this in the book, but the the correlation between Mm. starting to use her voice for the first time and having a dream. And she even says, I realized, I realized I needed to get out. And then I realized I could get out. Or I realized like I had to get out. I realized I needed to get out and realized I had to get out. And just that shift for her of and when trauma, the, one of the foundations of trauma is powerlessness and for her to exercise her power, stand up to her father at that age and also to have a dream and to like start pursuing it. She says like, I needed that dream. Like that dream was, I don't know if she called it survival, but, but she just talked about how important having that dream was and the correlation between those two things happening when she was 14 and the, the end of the wedding. With this change and this new approach to living life. Yeah, what are some things, or how important would you say just that ability to hope and the ability to dream and ability to make choices is for the trauma recovery process?
1: Yeah, I would say that. I mean, it's very important. That's a big, I mean, trauma is a lack of choice. That is, that is what trauma is. It means I have no choice in this moment. And so what stands out for me and something that is very vital, I think, in healing is, is power because powerlessness is so debilitating and trapping and it feels like there isn't a way out. And in that moment for her, you know, as... As she talks about in her story, was the shift of of the fear of the I don't have any power, and even though yes, like after she stood up to her father, she still didn't have an income. She still couldn't leave her home. Like there are still things that she was trapped in because she was still a child. Like all these things, but the ability to move, it's the movement. She got out of the stuck in that moment. She started to like get out of the freeze response and move towards the fight and flight response, which is where our agency is. And so she became she had more agency after that moment and was able to propel her into spaces that she that she, you know, may have not ever given herself. The ability to dream of until that moment.
0: Yeah. Cause she talks about the experience of running away from those boys and, and the realization that she never stopped running. And she says, my feet, my feet stopped moving, but I never stopped running until she was late twenties and ended up of addressing some of that in therapy. And mm-hmm. that uh, I related a lot with that, of that she's talking about like, on one hand, she's like, won't take any shit from anybody, and everyone sees her as this like very powerful person. And to some extent, she sees herself that way and the way that she fought back with these boys and and all of the things that she's overcome. But I can relate with that feeling of both like I am this like powerful badass. And at the same time, I am a little scared little girl in a in a fetal position. and that like both of those things can be true and often are true in oh. a trauma survivor of of having, you have this fierce, scrappy determination that is your survival, your ability to survive. But then there's still that little child that's terrified and needs to be cared for and needs to be protected and honoring that at the same time that you're honoring this thing that helped you live and helped to help you get out of get out of that stuck.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: I know with my clients. And then also just in therapy and my therapists have helped me with this too, is in those moments of powerlessness of like just sitting with and observing what choices do we have? Like maybe we can't leave this job right now, or maybe we can't leave this marriage right now, but what can we do? What are choices that we have? And just like, what are places that we do have agency and to have choice even with, because it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the things that we can't control. Uh, And for her as a child, not being able to escape this poverty and, and yet to have this point down the road where she's dreaming of exit. And then she's dreaming of getting out. And that is a huge, huge part of just hope, having hope (laughs) of getting you out of that, as you called it, the stuck.
1: Absolutely. And a, a big part of something that I love to offer my client is, you know, from the moment of contact, how much power can I give them
0: in mm-hmm.
1: the moment of contact for like when they enter into my room, they get to choose where they sit, mm-hmm. they choose how fast or how slow we go into something. Now I do tell them like, you know, giving me your entire story and the very first session a lot of times that overwhelms our system mm-hmm. ask you to maybe you know slow that down some mm-hmm. but what is it like to give as much power to somebody who has been powerless and I think that's a big part of what Viola talks about her teachers even did mm-hmm. you know one of her teachers would just call like not really say much but would call Viola and to is either the teacher, or the principal would call Viola into the office and she would give Viola her daughter's hand, like clothes that she had outgrown. You know, Viola talks about how she loved those clothes. Like, you know, she didn't have things like that. And it was like, oh, like, here's, here's something that, you know, somebody is seeing me. And there's so much power in being seen, even if that didn't change her circumstance, even if that didn't mean that she got out of that home, the fact that she could be seen by people, by some of her teachers, you know, she wasn't growing up seen by a lot of people. You know, there's very little people who saw her, who took the time to see her, but she talks about how those people in her book, those you know, very few people who did see her, like that also gave her a sense of of belonging, of being able to to step more into her power, even even though her situation and her family system were engulfed in so much different types of trauma.
0: That segues into addressing one of the things that she says is in the face of compassion and empathy shame dies or compassion, compassion and empathy kills shame. Describe what that looks like to have receive compassion and empathy and how that causes shame to dissipate.
1: Yeah. So a big part of that is, you know, when you're, when you're in the midst of someone who can see you, like it's, it's one of my favorite things that you, that Brene Brown talks about this difference between Sympathy and empathy, that sympathy, you know, drives connection, but empathy fuels connection and empathy, that compassion. Brene talks about how like there has to be a part of me that connects to something within myself that can relate to what the person in front of me is going through. Because then that creates that compassion, that understanding Even if, even if I don't fully understand, even if I don't, I haven't actually gone through that exact same situation, that, that compassion fuels connection. And in that connection, shame dies because shame is about isolation. Shame says, I am dirty. I am not enough. I am, you know, bad when somebody can move towards you and compassion and be like, that's, that's not what I see. I see that you are beautiful and wonderful and all of these like deep caring spaces, shame does move out because then that person is having a corrective emotional experience of being seen by someone and it's, it's uncoupling their identity with their trauma. And so when you are uncoupling that and you're saying, okay, I am not just this. I'm not just what happened to me. And we actually move out of that uncoupling. We can say, what happened to me was horrific. And there's grief and pain and anguish that comes from that. And I am enough and I have worth and value, that shame doesn't exist in that space anymore. And so that's a big part of what compassion does, is it really helps uncouple people's identity from what has happened to them.
0: And the very experience of feeling someone else's compassion and understanding rewires and reshapes that messaging that we have of ourselves, because we're actually getting to experience, yes, experience. That compassion and, and just, especially when there's nothing else countering it. And lot times it's it's
1: a, is, yeah, it's a new category for people, mm-hmm. right? You're creating a new neural network. You're creating a new category. And by creating that new category, you're growing a new way of existing in that moment with those, with people, it takes time. Like it doesn't just happen overnight. A lot of times there are parts of self that don't necessarily believe the person who is giving that compassion. But as you're, as you're continuing to meet that person in their shame and be with them in their shame, not trying to fix them, be with them in that and let them attach to you in a way that's not shame producing, is like, no, I'm not going anywhere. You like believe this about yourself and I'm still here. I'm still a part of this. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of your healing. And that is so different and very unfamiliar and can sometimes be very scary for people who are more comfortable with the familiar belief of I am bad or I am disgusting or I am not enough or I am less than.
0: And a lot of times that comes out of the shame itself. Yes. Most of the time comes out of that survival response. Uh, And just for example, a situation where you do experience abuse as a child and it is easier to believe easier. That's not a great word for it, but it's, it's safer to believe. I did something that caused this person to abuse me. It's my fault, and it and it is a way, of, sort of, of kind of getting control a little bit, rather yeah. than my caregiver's unsafe.
1: Yeah,
0: and we can't out of survival because as a child you can't get you can't escape. <laughs> like you're you're stuck with yeah. that caregiver, and so that very development of shame comes yes. out of a survival response and Absolutely. so even that is just like a more compassionate approach to this shame that, that we can give ourselves when we do experience that shame and that when someone is sitting with us and like actually no that's that's not what i see and and it makes sense that that is how you feel about that and based on your story and creating space for alternate narratives is is the experience of compassion and experience Mm -hmm. of empathy that is a huge part of the recovery journey and and is a huge part of Vila's story and and what she has experienced and overcome and I just love that she is not she has she has this like posture towards her story of just like it hasn't been it's not Cinderella's story and I like keep waiting for the Cinderella's story And it hasn't happened. (laughs) And that's not, that's not life. I just have this like realistic view of, of life, holding it with that celebration of, of the things that she has overcome and accomplished and has been able to mean to other people. Is there anything else that you would like to share as we wrap up?
1: Mm, Let's see. I mean, I think something too, that she talks about some but I think is also important for just trauma survivors or people who have gone through trauma is a lot of times trauma survivors, our work ethic is exceptional, but that comes out of our survival. And she, there's a lot of that undercurrent in her story of how hard she works. She has no problem overworking you know, like she will work herself into the ground to achieve Mm -hmm. her, her goals and those types of things. And then that's that undercurrent of the scarcity of the poverty of not having enough. And so I think that that's an important, like I said, undercurrent to her story is that work ethic of, I can't slow down. I can't rest. I can't just be, because if I do that, then something bad is going to happen.
0: And even the inability to know when your body is in that overworking phase and when you're doing too much because you have such a high capacity for stress. And so the the normal alarms that would go off for someone who is regulated aren't going off because they've just kind of been shut down and suppressed because they had to be, it was, it was survival. And so disconnecting from those alarms and from that physical self in general is what can create a space where a survivor might tend towards overwork (laughs) in in an unhealthy way.
1: Yeah. And there's a difference between being able to have capacity and being able to tolerate
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're two different things. And a lot of times survivors are like, yeah, my capacity is so high. I can do all of these things. And it's like, but actually can your nervous system tolerate it mm-hmm. can your body actually tolerate it? Or, you know, what, what do you find yourself kind of like going into or coping or using to, to be in that high capacity state? And I have had a lot of clients struggle as they both have become healthier, and myself included. As we've become healthier, our capacity our less capacity goes down. Capacity our capacity goes down. down. It's really, it's really depressing. Oh it's really hard. <laughs> because it's like I used to yep. be able to do all of these things, and you know, like accomplish all these things, and like get through these books, and see all these clients, and go to these trainings, and teach all these things, and, blah, blah, blah. and then it's like, oh wait, like. I'm actually
0: mm-hmm.
1: my my nervous system is saying we can't actually tolerate that. Mm-hmm. That's actually too much for us. We need more rest or we need more fiction books or we need more, yeah, sitting at the beach or whatever it is. like we need more just slower paced living
0: and if and in case somebody is hearing. Don't get help because you'll have less capacity for stress. <laughs> in that case does, of I'm hearing yeah. that, that level of stress on your body can only be sustained for a short amount of time, Absolutely. and eventually it will show up in other ways in Absolutely. in health issues. Yes. It probably start with immune like,
1: disorders. Auto,
0: yeah, it could it could result like that. in that. It might just start with like insomnia and having trouble sleeping. It might be that when a traumatic event occurs, you don't have the emotional resilience to be yeah. able to deal to yeah. deal with that. I think that happened to me in the fall of this year is I was already in burnout and then a trauma happened in that burnout. And that resulted in my body physically shutting down because it was just, it reached a point where it could not continue anymore. And, and so you may not want to do anything about it because you like that capacity and I get it. I like that capacity too. I like being a high achiever and getting shit done, but I know, and you know, that is not going to be sustainable long-term. You can continue continue forever, but like, we're thinking cancer down the road. We're thinking, dementia chronic stress adrenal fatigue yes, these things so result from high stress so if that capacity made
1: for that our bodies our yeah. systems not exactly. made for that and unfortunately we live in such a money driven power driven society that a lot of times we trauma survivors are praised for our high capacity and what we need and then be- when you
0: experience shame and people are like way to go look of all the things that you're producing you yeah. just want more of that like you just and like Vo- villadeva talked about that about how she yeah. loved the affirmation yeah. that she got
1: makes yeah. total sense absolutely because that is what we can control. That's where our identity kind of moves into. It's like, wait, people are praising me and seeing me mm-hmm. in this type of producing capacity. Mm-hmm. And that feels good. That feels like, oh, I'm I'm being wanted. And what sucks is that that's kind of an kind of an overcoupling of being wanted in a very conditional way if you
0: produce produce xyz if you produce blah 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 and and she and she mentions that of like she becomes a commodity once she's successful and and that and when people get used to you having that high capacity healthy people not everyone but unhealthy people don't like it when you start taking care of yourself Yes, and, and they actually get offended when yeah. you start. You set up a boundary. Boundaries. Yep, yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and so that makes it harder to to set those boundaries mm-hmm. uh, when you're surrounded by people that are just like, yeah. "Where's where's the output that you were giving me? You're not you're not given giving me as much as you used to give me." But yeah, no, that was a great, great, great observation. Great point.
1: Viola Davis is badass still yes she's okay. phenomenal i mean everything i've watched just about everything she's in and it's just incredible the way that she yeah uses her story and connects to what she's experienced in the film industry
0: do you have a favorite
1: i do have a couple favorites so i mean yes how to get away with murder was just in Incredible, like her, like gosh, yeah, that character, Annalise Keating, is just amazing. I can't say enough about her. Awesome, I'm excited. To- gosh, is <laughs> <it's just laughs> phenomenal. I loved her in Fences with Denzel Washington. Like I said, that scene when she's yelling at him, saying, "I've given up all of my dreams to support yours," is just mm-hmm. one of the best scenes. I feel like in like somatic history it's just mm. it's just incredible to see her get to that like anguish level yeah, yeah. so i just love that a ton and yeah i would say those are probably my top two but you know i've also loved her in the woman king and the help and oh i uh, forgot she was in the help yep yep yeah. Great cast there. Yeah. She's in quite a few phenomenal phenomenal spaces. So phenomenal woman. Phenomenal woman, absolutely.
0: Cool. Well that's, that's a wrap. Great.